All right, speaking of honesty, the Word of God, John chapter 10. Uh, We're in verses 22 through 30 this morning. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning that we indeed may see Jesus high and lifted up, that we might see a glimpse of his incredible majesty and supremacy, that believing in his supremacy, we might see his sufficiency to save us. Open our eyes to the hope to which we have been called in Christ. Open our eyes to the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in and for us who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask this for His glory and for our good. Amen. Perhaps some of you who are not familiar with baseball have heard the name Josh Hamilton recently. Josh Hamilton, uh, for a number of years, has been one of the most feared hitters in the American League. Uh, He has been one of the reasons why the Uh, Texas Rangers got to the World Series twice. Alas, they didn't win. I have no skin in that game, don't care. Um, He's many things besides a baseball player. Uh, He's a husband. I believe he's a dad. Um, He and his wife uh, help an orphanage. I think they help found an orphanage, and they maintain and and support that. And so in many ways, his career has afforded him uh, a great measure of capacity to bless others as well as being famous. The reason he's in the news right now is because he also has a problem. Though he is a professing Christian, Josh Hamilton has a problem with alcohol and a problem with cocaine. Not the first time this has happened. In fact, uh, he was a number one pick by the Tampa Bay Rays. Never played for them, really. He lost three years in the minor leagues uh, because of alcohol and cocaine abuse. Never got up to the bigs with them. Got rid of him, basically. He made it up finally with Cincinnati. Didn't last very long there. and Had a couple of relapses while building a good career for himself in Texas and now has just self-reported that once again he has succumbed to the temptations that haunt and hunt his soul. Destroying his career, but can it destroy him? 
That's the question. Our big idea this morning is that the shepherd is strong to save the sheep his father gave him. You only have two points today. Hopefully that will result in a slightly shorter sermon. Um, But don't bank on it, people. (laughs) I have the capacity to talk forever. Um, But the first thing I want us to recognize is that the voice of the shepherd separates the sheep. We've, we've talked about this a little bit in that there's a sheepfold that was Israel, and he calls his sheep out of that sheepfold. Not everyone that was in that sheepfold was his sheep. Okay? We talked about how he had sheep from another fold, the Gentiles, and he was going to call them into the one flock under one shepherd in fulfillment of the promise we saw in Ezekiel this morning that the one shepherd David, the son of David, would come and shepherd his people. God's people. We're going to return to this subject even though it's a few months later. Last time we talked about this, uh, it was most likely at the end of the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and now this, there's a different time signature for this one, and this takes place at the Feast of Dedication, sometimes called the Feast of Lights. If you're one of those people that goes, where's that? I don't remember that in the Old Testament. You are right. You don't remember that from the Old Testament. If you're someone who reads the Apocrypha, like Christopher, you're fully aware of this. If you have Jewish friends, you're also fully aware of it. We normally call it Hanukkah. Okay? There's a slight difficulty that presents itself that I'm not going to get into here too deeply, and that is um, with regard to what is called the regulative principle of worship, wherein we may only do that which is commanded to us to do in the Scriptures. And I believe in general the regulative principle. I did not take that as an exception before Presbytery. But this is the head-scratcher. This was not commanded in Scripture, and yet Jesus, who would have upheld the regulative principle of, wor- principle of worship, celebrated something that was, he wasn't commanded to celebrate. So, let's keep that in mind. Perhaps some people's expression of the regulative principle goes beyond the principle in Scripture itself. But this extra biblical feast began after Judas Maccabeus as we can find in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees of the Apocrypha, uh, rebelled against the Greek oppression. The Greeks had actually under, had defiled the temple, and the, the rebels under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus had uh, kind of regained Jerusalem and purified the temple. And so that's why it's called the, the, the a Feast of Dedication. They rededicated the temple. Where the, where the menorah comes in and the lights come in is the, the miracle that they believed happened in light of the, the oil not burning out. They had enough when they thought they did not have anything close to enough. So it's odd that John brings this up. But there's a sense in which if we think about who Jesus is, we recognize that as the new temple... And as the light of the world, Jesus is actually the fulfillment of this feast, even though it is an extra-biblical feast that takes place. R.J. Gore, in his book, Covenantal Worship, notes this. Jesus attends the Feast of Dedication and uses the occasion to point out that he himself is the fulfillment of the two major themes that are celebrated in this feast that he is the true temple that is dedicated to the worship of God, that he himself is the light of the world that will shed light 
to all of the world that people will come to. Now Jesus is there. He's at the colonnade or porch of of Solomon. And what happens is that Jesus gets swarmed. He gets surrounded. The, the idea that is here is really is, is they're pressing in around him. They're encircling him. And I don't know if you've ever been sort of surrounded by a crowd, even though he's got his disciples with him most likely. I'm sure it was intended to be quite intimidating at the very least. And they basically say, we want to know. You need to tell us once and for all. You need to make this clear as day to us. Are you the Messiah? Because from their perspective, Jesus had not been clear. That's not how Jesus sees it, obviously. But they want to know. Tell us plainly. They want an unequivocal answer to the debate that we saw at the end of the last passage we just read. Okay, verses uh, 19 and 20. Talking about this debate that was raging amongst them. They want the answer. They're going right to Jesus. And Jesus' reply was, I told you. Past tense. Okay? He has already told them the answer to this particular question in a number of ways, including the language that comes out of his lips, including things like, I am the good shepherd. After all, who is the good shepherd but the son of David? And who is the, what is another term for the son of David? The long-awaited Messiah. So Jesus has been telling them repeatedly in various ways, and they just haven't gotten the message. Or, more accurately, as Jesus says, they have refused to believe the message. Hmm. I've told you. In other words, you are without excuse. I cannot help but think of Romans chapter 1 when Paul speaks about the Gentiles and all of the world is without excuse precisely because for what is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Paul, of course, there is doing an exegesis, so to speak, of Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. But that's about simply the the fact of God's existence. Jesus also basically is saying, you are without excuse with the knowledge that I, Jesus, am the Christ or the Messiah. I'm Him. You do not believe. They didn't believe when he said it, and they still don't believe. They are persistent in their unbelief. And Jesus is again calling them to the carpet, so to speak. But note the reason why they don't believe. The reason they don't know if he is the Messiah is that they don't believe his works. That's the first answer. There's a second answer that's coming as well. But the first thing is they don't believe his works. These things that he did in the name of the Father, these things which testify to him. In other words, these are the things which in the Old Testament were meant to indicate who the Messiah is because he is the only one who can do these things. And he he has done them again and again, yet they continue to reject the fact that he is Messiah. 
including the miracle we saw in chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind. No one else had ever done anything like this. It was meant to be, as we have talked about, an indication from Isaiah that this was the work of the Messiah, and therefore this is the Messiah. It's there for plain to see. They didn't want to believe it. The second reason that they do not believe he is the Messiah is because you are not among my sheep. We have to be very careful at how we look at this verse. He is not saying, you are not my sheep because you haven't believed. It's, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Their sheepiness <laughs> defines their believingness. Which flock they're in. If they're part of his flock, they will recognize the voice of their shepherd and believe. If they can't recognize the voice of their shepherd, it's because, well, they don't recognize his voice as that of their shepherd, it's because they are from a different flock. They are not part of the people that have been given to him by the Father. Okay? Sheepiness. Well, the right sheepiness. I guess I like that word because you giggled. Leads to faith. Faith does not lead to sheepiness. Okay? And so we see here that the voice of Jesus crying out separates his sheep from the rest of the sheep that belong to others. Jesus reminds them that he knows his sheep. He knows who they are. Earlier we saw how he calls them each by name. And he knows, obviously, those who aren't his. And he knows they aren't his. These guys in front of him. These ones who are encircling him, demanding to know the truth. He's giving them the truth they don't want to hear. Do we know if Josh Hamilton, professing believer, is one of the sheep? I don't know. I'm not qualified to know whether he's elect or not. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows. For instance, 2 Timothy chapter 2, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We've saw, we saw this before in... Well, maybe we did. Yes, we did. In Revelation and Sunday school, we, saw, we see it as well. In Ephesians, the seal of the Spirit, the mark of ownership uh, uh, that is there. You know, we talked about Toy Story and how, you know, Woody had Andy written on his foot. This, you know who we belong to. God has marked all of his people. And if Josh is one of his people, one of Christ's sheep, he is marked, he is sealed in the Spirit, and it's done. Jesus' sheep hear his voice, but that's not all, and they follow. Now, what I want to remind you of is that this is an indicative, meaning a statement of fact, not a command. Okay? 
Some of you probably heard that and said, you know, when I first read it, that Jesus is telling me to hear his voice. Jesus is telling me to follow him. And while we could get that from other texts, that's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about the nature of his sheep. And the nature of his sheep is to hear his voice, and the nature of his sheep is to not only hear it, but to follow him as he leads them. They know their shepherd. That's where they want to be, by their shepherd. And so as their shepherd calls out, they continue to follow him. It's important for us to remember this. Sometimes we, we hear statements of fact and we try to, to turn them into commands because of the covenant of works which still remains upon our hearts. How did you hear when Jesus said, they are my sheep, they hear my voice, and they follow me? Did you hear that with a twinge of perhaps, I don't follow him enough? That's not what it's intended to do. Not at all. Not at all. They hear the voice of Jesus particularly in the scriptures and in the word preached. There's a, there's a concept that is found in our confession and other Reformed confessions that talks about the word of Christ in the word preached. A high view, a very exalted view of the preached word. Now, obviously, if I depart from the scripture and the preaching of the word, uh, that ain't Jesus type teaching you. <laughs> okay? But we hear primarily in those ways the reading and hearing of the scriptures and the hearing of the preached word is how Jesus speaks to his people and that those who are his recognize his voice there. They recognize the consistency to the rest of Scripture and they continue to follow him. What I want to do, brothers and sisters, is to warn you for a second. Because I've seen this far too often, unfortunately, in pastoral ministry. I want, to, I want to warn you about subjective means. I've heard too many people tell me that what they're doing is okay because they prayed about it or because they had a dream about it. Uh, someone actually told me that once. You've got to compare it to the Word. He will not speak to you by prayer or speak to you in a dream in any way that is inconsistent with the Word of God. And I'll say, I don't think He's speaking to you by a dream. That's a different matter. A subjective impression or circumstance cannot trump the clear teaching of the Scriptures. In the original movie MASH, for instance, Frank Burns is a Bible thumper. You're not supposed to like Frank Burns at all. Even worse than in the TV show. You're not supposed to like Frank Burns. And of course, he and Hot Lips have something hot going on. And part of the blasphemy of what they say is they start thanking God that he has brought them together 
The problem, of course, being that Frank Burns has a wife back home in Indiana. I think it was Indiana. The circumstances don't trump what God has said. But sometimes we act that way. Sometimes in our pride, in our self-delusion of really wanting what we want, we convince ourselves that somehow God has spoken to us in a way that we can ignore that which Scripture teaches. The sheep can do that once in a while. If we remember the third paragraph there of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. But I want to warn you about those subjective means. The sheep may stray at times, but they always return when the shepherd calls. If Josh Hamilton is one of his sheep, I mean, he, he, he strays sometimes occasionally when it comes, and grievously, I might add, uh, when it comes to his addictions, but he hears the voice of Jesus say, come back to me and rest, and he comes. But this is the nature of sheep. This is part of what, unfortunately, sheep do. You see, they, they, they like this particular patch of grass that they're working on right now. And they can start to tune out the shepherd because this piece of grass looks really good. And they can follow this piece of grass and moving farther away from the shepherd, not realizing they're doing it, of course, because they're so focused on this piece of grass. And we'll stick with the G for a moment because that piece of grass can represent gossip, greed, gluttony or any other sin you might imagine that has, begins with a G. And so they're, they're just so focused on whatever it is that seems so good to them but is actually bad for them, and it leads them to this place over here. And they wonder, wait a minute, where did I go? Actually, more like, where did they go? <laughs> you know, that's what happens. We always, where did God go? No, where did you go? Okay. But if they belong to him, he will call, and they will come. They will hear, and they will know where they need to go. We stray, brothers and sisters. That's a fact of life, whether we want to admit it or not. That's why it's in that third paragraph in that chapter in the Westminster Confession on the perseverance of the saints. We stray. That's why we sing about it. We stray. Daniel. I'm going to single you out for a second. Hope you don't mind too much. Daniel's going to go away to grad school. Good stuff. We're thankful for that. But you know what's going to happen, Daniel? You're going to be in a situation where you're not going to come home and look your parents in the eye every night. And you will experience temptation like you have never experienced temptation. And you will... uh, most likely, at times, compromise in ways that you never thought you would compromise. Talk to the others who have gone away from home to go to school, and they will most likely, if they're honest, tell you about some way in which they know they strayed and they wish they hadn't. But they heard the voice of Jesus and came back. We all stray. That's what sheep do, unfortunately. But they hear the voice of the shepherd and they return. So his sheep are separated from the rest when the shepherd calls to them. Secondly, the shepherd saves the sheep with his strong hand. Remember, the sheep hear, the sheep follow, 
And Jesus says that He gives them eternal life. This is tied with knowing. He knows His sheep, but eternal life is knowing Him and knowing the Father. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. And so eternal life is really about knowing God. God gives us knowledge of Himself, who He is, and a, not just a knowing factually, but knowing experientially knowing. Like how I know my wife, to borrow a biblical metaphor. Okay? It's about knowing. There is no eternal life, there is no salvation without this personal experiential knowledge of Christ and the Father. Eternal life is something that is given to us. It is not something that we earn or we gain by our accomplishment. We're sheep. We don't accomplish much. We eat grass, drink water, make messes, and grow wool. That's pretty much it, folks. (laughs) Okay? And part of what was going on in that passage in Ezekiel where... uh, you know, trodden down the grass and everything. They're polluting the pasture for the other sheep. That's what's going on, okay? That's what we do. We don't accomplish much of anything. And so salvation is really a gift. We, remember, we need to remember the, the giftedness, so to speak, the, the graciousness of salvation, that we're humbled, And that we recognize we can't lose it when we stray. Jesus says, they will never perish. This word perish can mean to be destroyed. It can also mean to be rendered useless. We have both of those fears, don't we? That we either might lose our connection to God, our salvation. Some of us also fear, or instead of that may fear, that we are utterly unproductive because of our circumstances, because of our affliction, or perhaps because of our sin, that somehow we're discredited and disqualified from doing anything meaningful in the the kingdom of God. And I think this word covers both of those things. They will never perish, and the and, and sheep will never be rendered useless. If you haven't picked up By Faith magazine this month yet, there's some on the side thing over there back in the, the foyer. Pick it up, and on the cover is a husband and wife, the Tippets. She's dying of cancer. We might think that would make us very unproductive that it might destroy our faith, overwhelm us. And yet she, despite this affliction and the fact that she's dying, remains useful in the hands of Jesus. She's able to speak about things, her blog is called Mundane Faithfulness. And in a world in which you have all kinds of authors talking about how essentially you need to do like something spectacular for God, you know, something radical for God. 
here is the call to what for what most of us is a mundane, ordinary kind of faithfulness, of faithfully loving Christ, serving his people in our circumstances. And her circumstances include watching herself waste away while she continues to love her wife, her husband and kids. He's a church planter in the PCA, by the way. Not rendered useless, but actually useful in the hands of the Redeemer, despite or because of her affliction. We do not perish precisely because, as Peter says in the first chapter of his first letter, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And so, if we're His sheep, we don't stop being His sheep. We don't stop hearing His voice. We don't stop following Him, but we continue. But Jesus expands upon this idea of not perishing. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, when I was a young believer, not as knowledgeable of Scripture and Christ's ways, and I said, I remember writing in my old Bible that has since fallen apart, and it's... it's Partially good that it has fallen apart and I threw it away because it contains old heresy. Um, you know, as a, as a young Christian, I wrote heresy in there on the margins. Um, well, I can remove myself from his hand. What makes me think I can remove myself from the hands of Jesus? There's a lot of pride in that statement. Am I more powerful than him? If he has paid for me with his blood, do you think he's going to let me go just because in a fit of whatever I want to leave? No. He comes after his sheep and brings them back. What a shepherd does, if he has a particularly rebellious sheep who keeps running away, is that oftentimes he will break the leg, bind it, and hold the sheep close so the sheep, the sheep begins to realize it's good to be by this guy. And usually what the sheep does once he's healed is he stays very close to the shepherd because now he has the bond with the shepherd that he needed. Sometimes he disciplines us so that we will draw near to him. You see? But no one will snatch them out of his hand. They are secure in his strong hand. The strong hand means that no thieves... No robbers, so no deceivers, no one by theft, or I mean, sorry, by, by coercion, no wolves. As I mentioned last week, no lions, tigers, and bears of life. None of this will destroy them. Paul talked about that in what we read from Romans chapter 8. And he mentioned some really big things right there. Famine. Persecution. Now we're watching that right on network news, aren't we? Okay? Not, we don't have it here, but we see it around in ways that we have not seen it before. We see what happens to some of our brothers and sisters around the world. Disease. These things, Paul says, they can't destroy you. They might kill you, but they don't destroy you. And there's a huge 
difference. Josh Hamilton's career is being derailed and possibly destroyed and, and has already been maimed in some ways by his addiction, his sin, his idolatry, and yet it won't destroy him. He's still safely in the Savior's hand if he's one of his sheep. And there's no one that can pluck him out. No one. So, you know, fear not the future. Know that all will be well if the, if the shepherd is nearby. And so that's one of the other things about sheep. Is, you know, I mentioned last week that they're very skittish, easily scared and frightened. What calms them down? The presence of the shepherd. That's what calms them down. It is no mistake that one of the most frequent commands in Scripture is fear not. And why are we to fear not? For I am with you. The shepherd is with you. The mighty warrior who fights on your behalf is with you. And so as, as the, the wilderness generation was getting ready at the end of Deuteronomy, and, and then you know, Joshua himself personally kept hearing this idea of, fear not, for I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus reiterates this in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. We see this in Hebrews chapter 13, quoted, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So don't think that money is your main deal. You have the presence of the Holy One who is for you. Even when He opposes your sin. Fear not. You cannot perish. Fear not. You cannot be rendered utterly useless to Him. Jesus preserves His sheep through famine, through war, through plague, through economic downturns, whatever you might imagine, whatever you are afraid of, and you know what it is, because it keeps you up at night. In 2007, when the Cornerstone Community Church closed, I knew I was in for a hard time. I knew the economic writing on the wall. I knew the economy was downturning. And I don't know how long it would be, but it would be a while. And you know what happens when the, down, the economy is down? People stay where they are. There wouldn't be many job openings for me. Didn't kill me. Didn't destroy me. Because my shepherd was in control. My shepherd continued to provide and care and lead and guide and do all the things that a shepherd does. You learn about what it says in Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, I can't think of anyone more powerful than angels or rulers except God himself, nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. He says, nothing. Why are we so fearful? Well, it's because we're sheep. <laughs> Gotta look to the shepherd. Gotta look to the shepherd. Because it's not about your grip on Jesus, it's about his grip on you. Okay? 
When you walk, when I, when I walk with my kid's hand in my hand, they're not holding me. I'm holding them. It's not about how strong their grip is. It's about how strong my grip is. And sometimes it needs, it gets very strong very quick because they're about to move into danger's way. Okay. But I perceive it, I anticipate it, I strengthen my grip. His grip on us is far stronger than my grip upon my children could ever be. And he holds us safe. And then Jesus shifts gears. He talks about the Father. No one is able, well, first off, he's greater than all, and no one is able to take them out of his hand. But he precedes this with this idea. It reminds us that the Father gave him the sheep. They are, the sheep are a gift of love from the Father to the Son. And so just as the Son loves and cares for the sheep, so the Father loves and cares for the sheep because they're His gift to His beloved Son. They matter to Him too. I care about the gifts I give to my children. Sometimes more than my children do. <laughs> I want to see those things preserved so they can enjoy them for years to come. The Father is like that, but greater. Okay? But there's a slight change. Jesus says about him, no one will snatch them out of my hand. But when he speaks of the Father, no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. There is certainty in both cases, but it is due to inability, the inability of others to overcome the Son or the Father. Like Father, like Son. Strong, mighty, committed to those that they love. We are doubly secure because both keep us secure in their hand as a treasured possession, as something more valuable to them than life itself, which we see Jesus laid down for the sheep. And then Jesus drops a bomb. He's always dropping these bombs in John's Gospel. This bomb drove the Jews well-nigh insane, which we'll talk about next week. But he says, I, and that's for emphasis, okay, I and the Father are one. They're not identical. They're not the same person. He's not saying, I am the Father and the Father is me. But this is hearkening back to what we see in John 1.1. 1, 1. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The plurality of persons within the Godhead, and we, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school with how it uh, impacts our understanding of Genesis 2, and the, the husband and wife become one flesh. It doesn't mean that they're joined physically at the hip or elsewhere, and uh, you know, they're just they're one body now. That's not the idea. But they are united. They're united in essence, Godhood, as well as in purpose, will, and design. The quote I, I read from Tim Chester from his book, Delighting in the Trinity, is this. The Hebrew word of one in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 
is the same word which is used for a man and woman becoming one flesh. Marriage involves a unity which contains plurality, so the Shema need not deny plurality within God. The three persons of the Trinity are united together. And so we can read the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we can see Paul reapplying it, so to speak, in 1 Corinthians 8. For yet there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Christ Jesus, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Hmm. Together. One. As well, in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope which belongs to our Lord, our call. Your call, sorry. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That word Lord that we, say in the, that we see in the New Testament is, in fact, the one that we see in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is how they translated the Lord, Yahweh. And so it's not saying that the Father is God and the Son is something else. They're both Yahweh the covenant Lord of the Old Testament. Yahweh is one, yet He is also Father, Son, and Spirit. They're all Yahweh. Probably deal with this more next time. Our salvation, the security of our salvation, is rooted in the essence of God. We only have salvation if Jesus is our shepherd, if we know his voice and we follow him wherever he leads us. This salvation which rests upon his death for us is secure. He will make us useful and protect us from false teachers, from persecutors, unemployment, disease, whatever you fear. He is able to grant us salvation and to keep us in the enjoyment of that salvation Precisely because Jesus is God the Son who was sent by the Father to give life to those whom the Father had given to him. The sheep. Let's pray. Oh, I ruined my page. Father, we thank you that uh, we have a sure comfort in life. And that sure comfort is that we belong to Jesus, that we belong to him body and soul, that we belong to him because he has shed his blood for our sins and redeemed us from the pit, that we belong to him because he has placed his spirit within us. And so, Father, comfort your people by these things, that though they go through affliction, though they go through temptation, though they fall at times and stray, Comfort them with the knowledge of their security in Christ who preserves them so that they might persevere. And we ask this in Christ's name.
Amen.